Our Father, we come to you and we ask you to do just that, to speak to us through your word. O Christ, that we would hear your voice, as it were, through the living word, the words of scripture, that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, that you would fulfill your ministry in revealing to us the glory of Christ and sanctifying us and renewing our minds and causing us to be encouraged on the way of holiness until we reach our celestial home, which is to be with you. And that is what we long for, and we ask you to point our eyes heavenward so that we could live fruitful, obedient, and lives here and be encouraged in that task, for it is a war. We are the church militant, as some of your older saints used to say. We are in a battle, and we want to be faithful in that battle, courageous in that battle, until that battle is over and we become the church triumphant. So to that end, Lord, use your word and be with us in these next few moments. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We come this morning to our final message uh, on the church to Sardis, the, the message of the risen and exalted Christ to the church that was in the city of Sardis. And we come really to one of the most wonderful parts, really, of all of the messages, and that is the covenant promises, the promises that the risen Christ is giving to his people who are faithful to him, who persevere in faith, who persevere in righteousness, who are faithful to the end. And so that's where we are in Sardis. We introduced it last week, but we will, we will wrap it up this week. And this really is appropriate and, and consistent with the rest of Scripture that Christ is always pointing us to the end. He's pointing us to the reward of trusting in Him, the reward of those who are faithful to Him. And, and as we've noted before, that all of Scripture, really from Genesis to Revelation, it, to, be in, to be among God's people, to have tasted of His redemption, is to enter into a world of hope in this life. The realization of all of those promises is yet future. It was to Old Testament saint, and it is to us even after the appearing of Christ. We have been saved. We are justified. We are in Christ. We are saints by calling. We are positionally set apart unto God, and yet we don't realize all the fullness and the reality of what that means yet. We live in hope. And that's where Paul takes us even in Romans 8, that we live in hope. We wait for that hope to be realized but we're not there yet, and so it is by seeking the things above where Christ is and not the things that are on earth that we derive our strength, we derive our motivation and our encouragement for sanctification and for holiness and for faithfulness in this world. And so that's where he puts us again this morning in his message to the church at Sardis. So let's begin by reading these six verses, so chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 of Revelation, and then we'll... Come to the conclusion of this promise. So beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things which remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. 
But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as I noted before, as with each of these letters, it, it ends with an affirmation of a covenant promise, a promise of the new covenant, a promise of those who are truly in Christ, a promise of hope, an encouragement to remain faithful to the end because of what the end will bring, and that is the realization of all that you have trusted Christ for, a realization of all that your heart longs for, all that you want, all that you're willing to leave the world and give up the world to gain, and that is Christ, that is God himself. Now he said here in verse 4, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And that's really where we last, uh, left it off last week. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And just by brief reminder, out of, uh, after acknowledging that the church by and large is made up of those who have a name. In other words, that they are in Christ. But in reality, there's spiritual death that reigns throughout the church. There is a, a vacuous kind of faith. We've talked plenty about that. He says, but among them, there are some who have not soiled their garments. Some that have remained faithful to Christ. Some that have remained faithful to the gospel. And he acknowledges them and he commends them. And he says to them, you will walk with me in white for you. Well, for they are worthy for speaking to them for you are worthy. And essentially what he's acknowledging is they have abstained from the kind of compromise with the culture and the sin that many had fallen into. And he says the reward of that is going to be that you will walk with me in white. And there is, of course, a lot of different connotations associated with the idea of white. I'm not going to rehash everything last week. It does have the idea of victory that is included in it. But it really has an emphasis here on the sense of holiness and purity. Holiness and purity. You will walk with me in white. That's the central idea that you will come to realize the full experience of what it means to be in me. What your heart has truly longed for. The same faith and the same hope and the same desire that kept you from getting your garments stained with sin. Your life compromising with sin here in this world. That same desire will be fully realized and one day you'll know the purity that you want. You'll know the holiness that you your heart really desires and it's captured in the imagery of white and we noted that that is associated with the idea and the promise in other places in the new testament namely ephesians chapter one and other places as well that the end of salvation is that those who are in christ those who belong to god in christ will stand before him holy and blameless to use the language of jude holy and blameless with great joy holy and blameless That is an astounding reality, an astounding thought, particularly for those who know Christ and who know the gospel because you have tasted the bitterness of sin. You live daily with your own flesh. You live daily with your own failures and your need to return again and again and again to Christ for cleansing, 
for a restoration of that fellowship, for strength to walk with him faithfully and obediently in this world. And so the idea of one day standing before God, a holy, infinite, majestic, incomprehensible, unsearchable God who's blinding in the purity of his holiness and to be counted holy and blameless, as holy and blameless as he is himself and able to stand in his presence is an amazing thought. It's an astounding thought. It's one that captures our imagination. It thrills something with inside of us in anticipation, and yet we fully realize that we don't understand what that really means. It's going to be a moment of excitement, a moment of joy, a moment of amazement and fullness that we can just imagine and try to grasp in some small way what that will be like. But that is included in the promise here, and it is a promise of the New Testament. And we noted by looking at other usages of this in Revelation 7.14 and 22.14 that this includes in its fullness all of the ideas of justification and of sanctification and ultimately of glorification. Justification of being counted right in Christ. He notes in Revelation 7 that these are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and they have made them right. In other words, they know the cleansing grace of God in Christ. They are counted righteous in Christ. We noted as well of sanctification. He refers to it in later in Revelation of those who have put on clean garments which are the righteous deeds of the saints that in other words their justification was made evident through their obedient life through their faithfulness to Christ through their works of faith and then ultimately in glorification when all of these realities come to their full fruition and we are as he says in the book of first John that we are fully conformed to Christ as he says in Philippians, to the body of his glory. When we fully take on the purity and the holiness and the glory and the wonder that Paul talks about in the resurrection body in 1 Corinthians 15, and we are like Christ in every way that it's possible for a human being to be like Christ and therefore like God. And so that is the promise here. But I want to note now, secondly, another aspect of this promise First, it is that we will realize in all of its meaning and all of God's intention what it means to be pure and holy before him. We'll revisit that a bit later. But here he says, as well, we will walk, they will walk with me, the second part of verse 4, in white. They will walk with me in white. And here I want to emphasize the aspect of fellowship. Holy, intimate, obedient fellowship. Notice what he says. They will walk with me. They will walk with me. This is a wonderful statement that points to the very heart of salvation. As we've noted many times, salvation is not merely being forgiven of our sin. It's not, salvation doesn't end with the reality of justification. That is, the, that is the, the initial point. That is a fundamental point that we are justified by faith, that we are counted righteous in Christ there are many other things that happen at salvation. But salvation at its heart is not, doesn't have as its end merely not going to hell. That's not the goal of salvation. That's a fruit of it, praise God. But that's not the goal of salvation. The goal of salvation is reconciliation. It's being taken from enmity to God to being made a lover of God. It's being taken from being on the opposite side of God's purposes to being in line with them and enjoying fellowship with him and being brought to the closest possible relationship with him. In fact, one of the great metaphors of salvation is that of adoption. And at the heart of adoption is to enter into the very relationship of the Son with the Father that he's had from all eternity as God. We enter in as adopted sons in Christ, in his 
exalted body to share in that eternal love that has always existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is relational. It is to be brought near in Christ as sons and daughters. One said this, Jonathan Edwards, Being members of the Son, they are partakers of the Father's love to the Son so that they are in their measure partakers of the Son's enjoyment of the Father. That's ultimately the end. And he captures that even at the end of Revelation in 21, where he says this, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my Son. That is relational language in the Son, in Christ. So ultimately, salvation is not merely not going to hell, not merely being forgiven of sin, as important and central as those are, but it is being reconciled to God through Christ, who in Christ he's reconciled all things to himself. Now on that, and I I want to just make a brief aside of this, Uh, we mentioned it briefly when we talked about the spiritual death that Christ charges the church at Sardis with. But I want to make a brief note here of things we've talked about in the past. But, but here I want to mention it again. And namely, that the first act of God and the gift of salvation in applying the work of Christ to the sinner is this. It is regeneration. It is regeneration. It is taking a sinner who is dead and making them alive in Christ. It is planting within them spiritual life. And out of that spiritual life come the further gifts of repentance and of faith. Regeneration is grounded in the resurrection of Christ and the new life of Christ. It is to be a sharer in what he accomplished in his saving work as Messiah and as our mediator. In the words of Paul, the Christian has become a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come in 2 Corinthians 5.17. This new creation he is described in Ephesians 4 as having been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That then becomes the truest description of a Christian. That is who they are at the deepest level of their consciousness and of their existence. That they are one who has become a new man who has an entire inner life that is reoriented toward God. Has a new reorientation toward Christ, toward sin, toward self, toward scripture, towards the world, towards everything. All things that passed away that did not include God and his saving work as Christ at the center. And new things have come. New things have come. There is an entirely new attitude toward holiness, toward righteousness, and toward the truth. You could think of regeneration as the opposite side or the reversal of total depravity. Whereas total depravity affected our mind and it made us ignorant of God. It made us to where we did not think God's thoughts after him, nor were we even able to do so. Where it corrupted our affections, where we did not love things of true holiness and true righteousness and of the truth itself and of Christ and of our will that always gave in towards what would ultimately be an act of disobedience to God, acting out of unbelief rather than faith and for his glory in Christ. Where regeneration changes all of that. And now the mind thinks differently and understands understands God is not ignorant. It thinks God's thoughts after him. It embraces the truth and it rings as true within the deepest part of their soul and it shapes the way that we think so that we're not conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of the mind. It changes the affections and the things that we love and the things that excite us and the things that please us at the deepest part of our being now become spiritual things. They become centered around the work of God in Christ till truth and eternity and those things become within us the sweetest 
things and the truest things that our soul desires. And our wills are then moved by this changed inner disposition to have an attitude of obedience to Christ where we naturally want to follow him and we want to do what he says. And when we don't do what he says, we feel conviction and we feel sorrow and we're led back again to the foot of the cross to always be reminded that our salvation rests in Christ alone, that we could never achieve it or maintain it. And so regeneration changes all of those things, and that's, that's what he's identifying here. And he says, this is what marks off a true believer from those who have a claim to Christ in name only, namely like those in Sardis. You have works on the outside, but you're dead. You have no renewed mind and new mind. You have no renewed affections, and all of the works that you do are actually works of unbelief and not works of faith. They are self-centered. They are not God-centered. And so he says, there are a few, though, who do have the reality of regeneration. And these stand in contrast because they have pursued holiness. They have showed that they are, in fact, true Christians. And that is essentially what marks off a true Christian from a non-believer. And that is a whole inner reorientation toward God, toward Christ, toward sin, towards the truth, and so forth. In 1 John 2.29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. In chapter 3, verse 9, No one who is born of him practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. That is to say, he cannot remain in a continual practice of sin without much misery and without much discipline by God because it goes contrary to his new nature. And so the full realization of that is essentially what he's appealing to here to those who were faithful and saying, what has begun in you and what you now struggle to work out, though with much failing, will one day be realized in its fullness. The, the end game of reconciliation will be yours. Listen to the way Jonathan Edwards described this. Now, I actually, this is, uh, I reread this sermon I remember it several times. It's uh, one of my favorites. It's uh, Jonathan Edwards, Heaven is a World of Love. I, you can get it free online, so I printed off some PDF copies if anybody wants it in the back. You should read it. Extremely, extremely encouraging message. But he says in that work this. A glorious work of the Spirit of God has been wrought in their hearts, speaking of believers, renewing their hearts, as it were, by bringing down some of that light and some of that holy, pure flame which is in the world of love. And giving it place in them. Their hearts are a soil in which this heavenly seed has been sown and in which it abides. And so they are changed and of earthly are become heavenly in their disposition. The love of this world is mortified and the love of God implanted. Their hearts are drawn to God in Christ and for their sakes flow out to the saints in humble and spiritual love. The enjoyment of the fruits of God's love, holy communion with God and Christ, and with holy persons. This is what they have a relish for. Now, if that's true of you, as it was to these he's addressing in Sardis, then this is an incredible promise. You will walk with me in white. You will walk with me in white. That fellowship that's always hindered now by remaining sin will one day be removed and the fullness of the fellowship you desire will be realized. And the key phrase there that stands out on that point is you will walk with me. You'll walk with me. Well, I want to just take a few minutes then to consider that. Referring to believers who share in this relationship, that, that's, that statement jumps out with us in all of its meaning of active worship and intimate fellowship. 
when we come across it in Scripture. And we sing about it. You remember this song, uh, Christ is Mine Forevermore? We sing it sometimes. But there, these are the words that, to me, always tend to stand out the most, although many of them. But it, we sing these words. Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with Him. His love is my reward. And it ends with these words. Mine are the keys to Zion City, where beside the King I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Do you remember those words? The one that always stands out to me is where beside the King I walk. Can you imagine that? Beside the King I walk. The King of glory. To the Christian, these are some of the most precious words of hope. The deepest longing of our soul. And they're emphasized throughout Scripture when Christ wants to encourage His people. Let me just just listen. I'm going to just run through a few verses here. In Luke chapter 23, verse 43, uh, He says this to the thief on the cross. Truly I say today, you shall be with me in paradise. Not as a crucified Messiah, bloodied on the cross, but as a triumphant Lord and King and Messiah and Savior. You'll be with me. Listen to the words he says to John. Or John records for us in John chapter 12. He says, He who loves his life loses it in verse 25. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And listen, where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Where I am, there my servant will be. And that is, in fact, the very heart of Christ. Listen to what he said to the disciples in the upper room on the night of his betrayal. He says this, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Listen to what he prayed to the Father. In John 17, in his great high priestly prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. That is the very heart of the risen Christ, the very heart of our Savior. Not to be separated from us, but to be fully, uh, in, have us in his presence and seeing his glory. He says that. That they may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given to me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's his heart. That's his heart that we would be with him. And that's the heart of a Christian, of a true child of God is to be with him. And there's no greater encouragement that we could receive is to say that one day that will be true. That will be realized. One day they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. For they are worthy. In other words, they have shown themselves by their lives to be worthy of this because they have shown the fruit of the gospel in their life. It's like Paul says, walk worthy of the manner of the gospel. Walk worthy of the gospel. And these have, and so they receive the great reward, which is to be in fellowship with him. And consistent with this promise is the fact that the worthiness of receiving this reward, and in fact the ultimate outcome of it, is that When we walk with Him in white, we will walk with Him in perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. And that's why the truest expression of love for Christ, ultimately the highest expression of genuine faith and of the work of regeneration in a a person's life, is obedience. It's obedience. 
The one who obeys Christ. It's not the one who says, I've come to know him, but the one who keeps his commandments. The one whose life is marked by righteousness in its overall character. They will walk with me. In other words, they will live the fullness of their life. They will live moment by moment for all of eternity in near and intimate fellowship with me, in full obedient love to me. And I will communicate eternally the fullness of my love for them. And that's what marks out these believers. And it's what marks out every true believer. We're not going to spend the whole time on this, but I do want to mention to you just a couple of passages. Listen to this. Just listen to it in John 15. He captures this idea. It's after he gives his great teaching on abiding in him, the abiding in him who is the true vine. He says this. Listen to verse 9 of John 15. He says, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Okay? Listen to verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What is the evidence of abiding in Christ? It is to keep his commandments. What is the pathway to knowing more of the glory of Christ and the intimate fellowship with Christ? It is to walk obediently with him. It is to live in consistent with who he is and his holiness and righteousness and truth. And it was no different for Christ. He says, in the same way, I, in my, in my work as the mediator, as the God-man, experienced and remained in that full experience of the love of the Father because of perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. And it's that same idea here. You have obeyed me. You have not stained your garments. You have shown the reality of new life within, within you. You have walked with me worthily here by remaining consistent with the gospel and with the truth and by not compromising. And your reward is this, that you will also walk with me in heaven. You will walk with me in the end. And you will be in intimate fellowship with me. And we delight in this. And again, listen to how he ends the canon of Scripture. In the last chapter of Revelation with this, he says in verse 11, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the end. Here it is. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and enter by the gates of the city. Those who demonstrated holiness, those who practiced righteousness, and those who trusted in Christ. Now, this is important because what is the error that those in Sardis had fallen into and many others is they had replaced the idea of salvation with other things, with mere activity, they, with mere religious activity, some sort of pseudo works, but it was not born out of a genuine faith in Christ. And so this stands in stark contrast to those who think of spirituality and spiritual reality primarily or exclusively within this framework, an emotionally driven experience. That's a dangerous place to be if that's what we equate spirituality with. Who think that worship is equated to music and I saw one video, it's one 
with those, <laughs> I don't know, those Bethel Hill song or whatever. Uh, I mean, the, the lady's singing with passion on her face. She's down on her knees with her hands raised. That may or may not be true. I don't mean it against her as an individual. I mean only to say this, that for many people, that is the way that you evaluate worship, is how much externally there are signs of emotion. Not by a holy life. Not by a willingness to suffer for Christ. Not by a love for His Word. And one way that that's shown is that there is a desire, an easy ability to listen to good music for an hour, but boredom to listen to sound doctrine for ten minutes. Because the heart doesn't really crave after those things. And so it's important to recognize it. It's important to recognize it because some equate faith or spirituality with the kind of faith that speaks and then God will act on their behalf in the word faith movement. That by speaking, we in essence force God, we obligate God to fulfill our desire and to act according to our words. Or those who say that spirituality or at least a true saving relationship can be had when there's no evidence of an obedient life. That's sometimes non-worship salvation or easy grace or whatever. But he says, no, none of those things are true. How do you know that you're not dead but alive? He says, because your greatest desire is to walk in holiness. Your greatest longing is to know the fullness of that holiness that has been implanted in your heart, in your actual experience that you know will come to you. What is the greatest, the greatest emphasis in your heart is to walk in fellowship with me and wait until that day that that will be realized. And so, of course, the great hindrance to this reality is indwelling sin. And the great... The great hope that we have is that someday that will be done away with too. Can you imagine that? We, even as the most mature Christian, have never lived one second of your life without sin and without the flesh. You've never had one perfectly pure and holy thought. You've never had one perfectly pure without any stain of sin whatsoever as holy as Christ throughout a deed in your whole life. You desire to, you have works that are accepted by God because they're accepted out of the sincerity of their faith in Christ who has atoned for our sin and who is the center and object of God's highest love. So he accepts them and we do have that for sure. But we feel always hindered in our desire to have intimacy with Christ. We hear the words of the psalmist in Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And we know moments of that to some measure, but we long to know it in its completeness. And indeed, consider this as well. When he says that they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy, is also to say they will walk with me in white in a place that is fully and completely designed just to that end. Heaven is a world of love, it is a world of holiness, it is a world of purity. And we long for that. Nothing unholy will be present within heaven. And I'd encourage you to read that sermon. I think Edwards does a great way of explaining and bringing this out. I'm not going to repeat all of those words. Of all the various ways in which everything is, that is delightful, everything that is joyful to the regenerate soul will be known in its fullest there in heaven. And he talks about this. In Revelation 21.8, looking at it negatively, is this. When we think of how we want to live out or we desire to live out holiness in this world, and it's hindered not only by what's in us, but by what's outside of us. But in heaven, everything that's ungodly outside will also be removed. And twice he mentions 
in describing the glories of heaven that everything abominable will be outside. Right after he makes that great statement, I will be his God, he will be my son, he says this in verse 8 of Revelation 21. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire with brim and brimstone, which is the second death. Nothing unholy will enter in. He says in Revelation 22, right after saying those who will write the right to the tree of life and enter the gates of the city, he says in verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Nothing unholy will enter into that holy place. Nothing that does not tend and end to the glory of God and the delight of God will enter into that holy place destined for His children and for believers. Let me just read this one quote. I want to move on, but this again comes from Edwards in that sermon. Uh, he says this, There are three worlds... One is this, one which is one is this, which is an intermediate world, a world in which good and evil are so mixed together as to be a sure sign that this world is not to continue forever. Another is heaven, a world of love without any hatred, and the other is hell, a world of hatred where there is no love, which is the world to which all of you who are in a Christless state properly belong. This last is the world where God manifests his displeasure and wrath, as in heaven he manifests his love. Everything in hell is hateful. There is not one solitary object there that is not odious and detestable, horrid and hateful. There is no person or thing to be seen there that is amiable or lovely. Nothing that is pure or holy or pleasant, but everything abominable and odious. Those who are in the battle now to fight against sin and walk with Christ in righteousness are those who give evidence they will walk with Him in white and in the future. In other words, if you don't love that holiness and purity here, then heaven has no place for you. But if you do, then heaven is the longing of your heart. Well, let's move on to this final, the second part of this promise. He says, you will walk with me in white. You'll know this purity. You'll walk with me in intimate fellowship marked by complete conformity to all that is good and holy and beautiful and right, and there's no threat that will ever come in and take that away. And that's one of the, actually just as a, here, the glorious places too. God created a world without sin, but with the possibility of sin, and sin entered into the world, Christ redeemed it. But the end of that was that God would create a world of those whom he would call out of the mass of sinners. He would redeem for himself a people for himself and place them in a world in which not only would they not sin, but there would never be the possibility of sin. It's not that there's a sin and it's a trial as it was in the beginning without sin. It is a holiness that is not grounded in ourselves. It's not that we keep ourselves, but it's grounded in Christ himself. And it is an unthreatened holiness. It is a pure holiness. It is a never-ending holiness. And that's glorious. And so we say, come Lord Jesus, come. But let's note, secondly, he says... They will walk with me in white. They are worthy. And then verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name out of the book of life. That's the second promise. I will not erase his name from the book of life. Tremendous promise. The form here, grammatically, is the strongest way in the Greek language that you can express a negative in other words, I absolutely, in the strongest possible way, as emphatically as it can be stated in human language, 
will not erase their names from the book of life. That is to say, the promise is certain. But now we have two questions then that come to our mind. One, what is the book of life? And is it possible to be erased? Is it possible to be in the book of life and then taken out of it? What does he mean by this? Well, let's note first, what is the book of life? What is the book of life? What does he mean there? Well, in short, it is this. It is a record before God of those who belong to him, savingly. Of those who belong to him, savingly. Let's just very, very briefly consider some of this. The idea of a register or a book recording God's people has precedent in the Old Testament, to be sure. There was a registry of those who belonged to the nation of Israel, who were a part of the covenant people of God. And that idea is then referenced sometimes within Scripture in the Old Testament to refer to those who were faithful in Israel and those who were not faithful Israelites. Let me just give you an example of that. In Ezekiel 13.9, he says this. There are a couple other places, but let me go here. Ezekiel 13.9, he says, So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord God. In other words, they will be cut off from these blessings. They will be cut off from the blessings. They will not be accounted among those who are God's people. There are some other places there as well. David refers to the idea of a book related to God's providence in his life. In Psalm 139, 16, we're familiar with these words. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That means before David came into existence, God knew every detail of his life from birth to death and everything in between. And the imagery of a book there is used. In Daniel chapter 12, again, this idea is used to speak of the faithful who are in who in God's redeeming purposes, he says in Daniel 12, 1, just, you can listen, now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. They will be rescued. One other, Malachi three sixteen, so you can get a feel for this. Those, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. So the idea of a book, an idea of those who are registered among God's people, was evident within the Old Testament, and that forms a, a conceptual background to the language of the Lord here. And that imagery becomes prominent in the New Testament. Let me give you just a couple of examples. In Luke chapter 10, he says this. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he says, Jesus does. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this after he talks about the successful ministry of those disciples sent out. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That your names are recorded in heaven and there is the idea of a heavenly record. Does the same thing, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. He says this in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 23. He says, 
And to the general assembly, talking about the end of those, these Christians, the, the, of the faithful Christians. And they will be called to this reality and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all the earth and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who are enrolled in heaven and counted in the registry of God, the book of God and the accounting of God. One more. Just one more passage. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Indeed, true companion... He says, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life. And so the basic idea of the book of life is those who belong to God. Those who are recipients of his redemption and of his saving work. Now we'll come back to that. But first... We have to answer this question, and it raises this question. What about the statement then that I shall not wipe or blot out or erase his name? Does this imply that a person who is in the book of life can be removed? Or more specifically, does it refer to somebody who was counted among God's people and savingly knowing him, can they lose that salvation? You could say it this way, is salvation a trial run? In other words, do you start it, God gives it, but now you keep it and you can mess it up, so be careful. Is that what he means here? Is he saying that you can be in the book of life and then blot it out? Can you have his salvation and then lose it? The short answer is no. Actually, that's the opposite meaning of the statement. But let's consider this. I'll have to go fairly quickly here. But the textual or biblical background for the statement almost assuredly comes from Exodus chapter 32. Now in Exodus chapter 32, that is an account that includes the sin of the Israel with the golden calf and Moses goes up on the mountain. He's pleading for his people after uh, he's pleading with his people uh, God tells him, well, God tells him to go down. God pleads for his people. Then he goes down and then he comes back up on the mountain and he's seeking to intercede for the people of Israel. And he begins in verse 31. And it says, and Moses returned to the Lord. That is after he had been with the people, he confronted them and he goes back up uh, to, to the Lord's presence. And he says, alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now and lead this people where I told you, and behold, my angel will go before you, and so forth. And then he mentions that he will punish them for their sin. So Moses says, blot me out of the book. This at least explains the, or it demonstrates the same heart that Paul had in his desire for the people of God in Romans chapter 9 verse 3. Where he's pleading with God with tears and he says, if it were possible I'd lose my own salvation. I'd give up my own salvation for them. And that heart is he present here. The same idea in terms of concern for God's people here, but... There is some distinction. If some of you have an ESV, you might see that translated book of the living. Book of the living. 
And the primary idea here with Moses is not so much in an eschatological sense in terms of I will give up my salvation. But he's saying, if you're going to kill Israel, then kill me along with them. Remember, God had just made a promise previous and said, let me wipe them out and then I'll start a new nation with you. And Moses is saying, no, then everybody will say that God failed. And I don't want a new nation out of me. I don't want something that's going to contribute to the sense of failure. Take me out too. Take me along with them. I don't want to live. If you don't fulfill your promises to these people, is the key idea. I don't want to be allowed to live among a people that God has rejected. I want to, in fact, plead for them and plead for their cause. Now, there is an eschatological sense of judgment in this in this way that those cut off from this life for their wickedness will be excluded from eternal life. But the idea here is saying that I want to lose my life here. I'm willing to die with my... If you're going to kill them, kill me too is the idea. He says something similar in Psalm 69. And I want to address this because this is important. Psalm 69, he says this. In verse 28. And he's, this is an, an imprecatory session, or section of this. Uh, that, that part where the psalmist is is reflecting the anger of God against wickedness and against sin, the judgment of God against those who reject him. And so he says in verse 27, actually, add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. Verse 28, may they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. And here sometimes it's translated the book of the living, the book of the living That's the idea. Here the psalmist is pleading this. Is pleading this. May they be taken out of this world. May they not be counted among your people. May they be, may their life come to an end. Spurgeon captured the idea well in these words. Speaking of this psalm. Though in their conceit they wrote themselves among the people of God and induced others to regard them under that character, they shall be unmasked and their names revoked from the register. Death shall obliterate all recollection of them and not be written with the righteous. They will not be written with the righteous. This clause is parallel with the former and shows that the inner meaning of being blotted out from the book of life is to have it made evident that the name was never written there at all. Another says to be blotted out and not to be written are the same. The idea is this, that men may reckon themselves among the people of God. They may make these false kind of claims, but God will make it evident, and the psalmist prays that God would make it evident that they would be shown they are rejected by God. You can get the, the sense of the words in Sardis. Listen to Calvin's words. On Psalm 69, he says, it is, it is as if he had said, O God, reckon them not among the number or ranks of thy people, and let them not be gathered together with thy church, but rather show by destroying them that thou hast rejected them. That's the idea. Now, some want to argue that being erased means that everybody's name created is in the book of life originally, but then by not trusting in God's promises by not trusting in God's redemption that it is then removed. However, this cannot be by the simple fact that these names were written before the foundation of the world. Something we'll return to in a moment. 
And although it is true that Scripture makes very clear that only those who persevere to the end will be saved, only those who continue to abide in Christ and continue to trust in Christ to the end will be saved. In many places, let me give you one, Colossians 1, He says, He has reconciled you, verse 22, reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed, this is the condition, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, was made a minister. However, The condition there is that what God has known will be made evident before man in all of eternity. By those who do not continue in the faith will be shown in the words of John to have never been among the faith. To have never truly known God. Or Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 2.19 referring to some false teachers. He says the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. He knows those who are his. Okay, but still, what exactly does it mean? What exactly, how do we get there? Here. He says, may your name will not be, definitely will not be blotted out of the book of life. Christ is here employing a figure of speech in which a negative is used to state a positive. There's many examples of this in Scripture. In other words, by saying that, He's affirming that nothing can change the fact that your name is there. It is there and nothing can remove it. That's the emphasis of his point. Listen to the way, other ways this is used in Hebrews 2 verse 11. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brother. Which is to say that he will confess their name before the father. Which he'll get to that in a moment. He says, for example, in chapter 4 verse 15... We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, which is to say, we have a high priest who can sympathize. We have one that's not detached, but one who knows most intimately your struggle and can come to help in the time of need. Many examples, but that's the idea of here. He's saying your name is secure. It's certain. It will not be removed. It cannot be removed. It communicates the security of those who are written in it. Once a person's name has been recorded in the book of life, it cannot be removed. It's not like a civic registry, for example, where sometimes an, a name could be written as belonging a citizen belonging to that area. But if they committed a capital crime and they were executed, their name would be removed from that registry. That's not what he's referring to here. In fact, it is just the opposite. He's saying once you're in this registry, once you're in God's registry, once you're in God's book, you cannot be removed. You cannot be removed. You are secure. To be in the book of life is to be been granted grace in Christ from all eternity. Listen to these marvelous words. And then we're going to take it even a little bit from another angle. But in 2 Timothy chapter 1, listen to these words. Paul describing the salvation received from God. He says, he saved us, verse 9 of 2 Timothy 1. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, listen, 
which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. If you are in Christ, if someone has received the grace of Christ by the gift of faith, that is something that God determined before the foundation of the world from all eternity, which is a concept we can hardly fathom. From all eternity. God did not determine something and record it in his book from all eternity and then say, oops. No, I changed my mind. Or you didn't quite make it. Or I've got to change that fact in my book. It is associated with Paul's words, that great affirmation of God's eternal love for his own in Ephesians chapter 1 where he says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And he's going to later explain that before you came to realize the fullness of that promise you by the way were dead in your trespasses and sin. You, by the way, walked according to the course of this world. You, by the way, followed the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You, by the way, were children of wrath by nature. But God changed that condition. And he changed that condition not because you were a more desirable and lovely dead sinner than the other dead sinners, but because before the foundation of the world according to his eternal purpose that he had chosen freely to bestow his sovereign grace and mercy in Christ Jesus upon you by name. And that is the idea of being written in the book of life. Of being written in the book of life. And none who have been written there will fail to know the life that God has given them in Christ Jesus. Let me just give you one other passage. So many, but let me just give you this. When Jesus is explaining, why do some of the crowds not believe in me? Why do they hear the same words? Why do they see the same miracles? Why do they observe the same life and yet some are believing but the mass are not believing? How are we to understand this? Why is it that way? And he explains it. He says in verse 36 of John 6, I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Why is that? Why is it that you see and you don't believe? He says all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him, the eternal will, the sovereign will. Before the foundation of the world, the will that was brought all things into being and is accomplishing all of his purposes and will sum up all things under Christ. That will is what? The will of him who sent me, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And who is it that comes to him? He says later in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I raise him up on the last day. Who are the ones who are drawn? Those who have heard and 
and learn from the Father in verse 45. They come to me and no one has seen the Father, perceived the Father, understood the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And this is all from the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. That is the one. That is the will of God. That is those who have been recorded in the book of life. Again, what about those who do not remain? They went out from us, but because they were never really of us. And just for time, let's mention this last one briefly. And what is the fruit of that? He's saying those who have remained faithful, those who truly know me, those who have not compromised with the world, those who have kept their garments clean, those who have abided in me and in the truth, they will walk with me, they will walk with me in white, they will not have their name erased from the book of life. Which, by the way, when that's used again, a few other times we won't for time's sake turn there in Revelation, he speaks of the wicked not having their name written in the book of life. Here he's saying it will not be erased. And not only will it not be erased, but he affirms the security of the salvation and the glory of it in this last phrase, the third promise. He says, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I will confess his name because that is the will of my father. Because according to that will, I have redeemed them. They are mine. Now, this is an amazing statement, and of course it's associated with John's, or God, the Lord's promise in Matthew 10 and other places of those who give up father and mother who endure the greatest kind of deception and betrayal of others because of faithfulness to him and his name. And he says to them the promise, I will confess your name before my father, but those who are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of them. Now to help feel the weight of this, let me at least note this. To help feel the weight of this, of what it means to have your name confessed before the Father and the angels by the exalted Christ. Consider the contrast. Consider those as compared to those who are also in Sardis, whom he says you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Consider how he connects that idea with those he warns in Matthew chapter 7. And they'll say, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And he says this, I will declare to them what? Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. That divides Sardis, doesn't it? It divides much of the church. You have a name, but when you stand before me in the full light of holiness and the righteous, perfectly righteous judgment is executed, you will not hear, well done, you will hear, depart from me. But those who are faithful will hear just the opposite. They will be confessed as belonging to him. They will not hear like the unwise virgins in Matthew 25 when they come knocking on the door having missed and being taken off guard at the return of Christ. They will not hear, truly I say, I do not know you. They will hear instead, the faithful, you are mine. You are mine. You belong to me. Can you imagine that great scene of judgment? A whole group deceived and hearing the words of the risen Christ, words of rejection and condemnation. And then the other group who shown that in fact they did belong to him, hearing those most precious words, they belong to me. They're forever mine. These are my redeemed These are the ones I love. These are my sheep. And this according to the eternal plan and the eternal will of the Father. Glorious words. He says, I will confess their name. And that is if you are a Christian, he will confess your name. 
And notice the idea of name here. He says, you have a name that you are alive, a reputation, but now he uses it different. Remember we noted, you have a few people, which is literally name, whom he knows by name, who he will bless with salvation. Those names are the names in the book of life. And those are the names that he says he will confess before his father and before the holy angels. Can you imagine any greater glory as truth? than to be owned by Christ according to the will of the Father and counted loved and declared before all of heaven to be loved by the Father, to be redeemed by Christ and to be a sharer in his inheritance and in fact to be his inheritance for all of eternity. And that is the promise. And he's essentially, if we were to apply that in one general sense, and he would say, one, don't be deceived Make sure that you belong to me. Remember what you or how you received and heard and keep it and repent. But the other is this. Is there any greater reward that could be given? Is there anything in this world that would be worth standing before Christ and rejected? The answer is no. But to own Christ now, to be counted among his and to follow him is worth losing everything. What would a man even if he gained the whole world, exchange for his soul when standing before him. No, the great longing of our hearts is to confess the name of Christ here and to long for that day where he will confess our names there as being receivers of his grace. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so the question is, is do you know Christ? Do you have a name that you are alive but you are dead? A simple question is to say, does any of that mean anything to you? And I don't mean for a moment or when you hear a worship song. I mean when you wake up in the morning, when you go throughout your day, when you're at work, when you're at home, when you're resting in your bed, when you go to sleep and when you wake up. Is the longing of your heart, you can say, though I stumble and fail, is to know him. And I long more than anything to be in his presence, blameless with great joy. I long to give him a life unhindered by sin and unbelief and weakness and my humanness so that I might worship him in the fullness of my being according to the worthiness of his glory for all eternity. That gives my heart the greatest thrill. Do you want to not compromise and be faithful to him? Do you enjoy and delight in growing in your knowledge of him? If so, then this promise is for you. If not, then the call is to repent and to believe. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. And our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your redemption. And for calling us always to the great hope that we have in you, O Christ. How can we even fathom being pure and holy as you are? And yet, that is the case. We have been granted that in our position. We will one day... One day know it in our reality and its fullness. Keep us faithful in meditating on these things. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.